This is Fight Night, a new podcast from iHeartRadio. They thought he had robbed the deadliest man in this country. Guys who would not hesitate to blow your head off. This story from Atlanta, Georgia, has been reported for 50 years. But now, for the first time, you're going to hear what really happened from the people who lived it. Listen and follow Fight Night on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. The handicapping games that surround American elections have surpassed the cottage industry status, and now they are full-fledged big-money businesses. Gambling websites and betting markets take predictions on winners, losers, on point spreads for almost every U.S. race now. And they sort of amount to a fantasy football league for political nerds. So if political gambling and betting on political races has become the new equivalent of Las Vegas casinos, then the Cook Political Report is the master of card counting. For 36 years, Cook Political Report has been analyzing and rating House, Senate, gubernatorial, and electoral college races, and it's truly the gold standard for handicapping and predicting the winners and losers in every major political race in America. Now, by the time we join you again next week, voters will be voting in every U.S. state that allows early voting, and absentee ballots have been mailed out in every state. The election of 2020 is fully underway, but until the evening of November 3rd, there's no way to know how those votes will go. I'm Clay Aiken. It's Wednesday, October 14th. This week, Politicon is blessed to be able to tap into the mind of one of the Cook Political Report's best card counters, Senate and Governor's Editor Jessica Taylor. What issues are deciding this year's elections? Which races are the closest? What could be the biggest upset? And is there any info in the polling that might answer, how the heck are we going to get along? You've got probably the most interesting job <laughs> in the world right now. I'm thinking about accountants and how I know people who are friends of mine who are accountants. Like you don't bother them between the last two weeks of March and the first two weeks yeah. of April. Just leave them alone. I feel like this is your time right now and that you're giving us any of it is just incredible. Is, is this the busiest well, time in your life right now? It is. It is. But I have to say, Clay, I'm really excited to be talking to you because when I was like telling my friends, I was like, I'm going to do Clay Aiken's podcast. <laughs> and they're like, well. what? Why? <laughs> what does that have to do with fan. politics? I'm a big fan as well. I, I watched you and voted for you on American Idol. So. <laughs> well, thank you very much. S substantially less partisan that vote was. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> but I do appreciate it. We were talking, I mean, I don't even know where I want to start with you, but we were, the producers and I were talking before you got on a little bit mm -hmm. about Cory Gardner, where, you know, have you been watching these, um, these SCOTUS hearings today and yesterday? Um, here and there, I will say I haven't been watching all of them simply because, you know, some of the action is occurring off of that. So I've had to do other things today. Right. Um, we were sort of talking about how, you know, what is the benefit for a Republican like Cory Gardner or a Tom Tillis anymore to do what Democrats would consider the right thing. I mean, I people know that I'm a Democrat, so I'll own that. But but obviously, Republicans don't like what Susan Collins did or what Lisa Murkowski mm -hmm. did. But, you know, a lot of folks who I know, Democrats are very upset that Cory Gardner and Tom Tillis and some of these others, Martha McSally, Joni Ernst, who are in somewhat mm -hmm. competitive races, didn't join Collins and Murkowski and say, let's wait until after the election. And I say, well, but what? What is the benefit to them in doing that? Because if if I said to you, fellow Democrat, not you, but someone else, if Cory Gardner came out tomorrow and said, you know what, I am not going to vote on this nomination until after the election, would you all of a sudden endorse them? Would you vote for them? And universally from Democrats, that answer is, well, no, because I want Hickenlooper to win and I want a Democrat. Mm -hmm. And I think, well, then what? is the benefit if they're not going to be rewarded. Is there any sign from any of the states where I just mentioned, including Collins, where this Supreme Court nomination and this fight has affected 
the way either candidate has has been polling? So I think when the vacancy happened, you saw a lot of Republicans that were really eager to sort of turn the page, to turn this conversation back to the courts, which has typically been one of their strongest issues and sort of helped them shore up Senate votes, Senate seats in 2018 after the Kavanaugh hearings. But the important distinction is that that year, Republicans had an incredibly favorable map with Democrats running in very deep red states trying to win re-election in places like North Dakota and Indiana and Missouri. And this time, it's it's very much flipped that uh, Republicans have almost double the number of seats that are up 23 to just 12 for Democrats. And I think what we have seen really, Republicans, Senate Republicans are just you know, stuck between a rock and a hard place. You're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Where if they don't side with Trump and Republicans overall, really, then they're going to get, you know, a nasty tweet from Trump and they're going and he's going to sort of send their base after them and they could lose that conservative support there. But if you buck the party, then I think it's the same thing that you're seeing friends. I mean, Susan Collins did this time. She didn't with Kavanaugh. And I think she paid a price for that very early on. And that ultimately may have sealed her spate. But you had, um, you know, some local stories that were interviewing people right after that saying, you know, well, will you vote for Collins? Well, conservatives were upset and, you know, independents and Democrats that had backed her before were saying, I don't trust her. I don't, you know, she may be taking this vote right now, but I don't trust that she will in the future. And so, so it hasn't moved it back towards her at all. It hasn't helped her, this decision no, she made. No, and I think really overall um, uh, that um, I think just the idea of just the, the fact that we're talking about the Supreme Court is not a good issue for Susan Collins. I think she'd rather be talking about, you know, her work with getting, you know, the Paycheck Protection Program and, um, you know, her bipartisan work. Her ads have really tried to focus on that. But this Supreme Court brings up a very deeply partisan issue and it reminds voters of why they didn't like her vote on Kavanaugh, why they were sort of so irked to begin with. And really that, you know, she would vote with a Republican party that many of them are out of step with. And with Gardner, I think ultimately the cake was probably baked before that. I mean, he is the Republican, he is the Republican incumbent sitting in the most difficult state for Republicans. Um, uh, that Trump lost by five points. Um, Trump lost Maine by a smaller, about three and a half points. But, uh, you know, five points. And then where we look at where the polls are, I mean, it's going to be a double digit loss for Trump in there. And I think Cory Gardner, um, you know, I think he, he he's still a pretty conservative Republican. Ultimately, I think, you know, he probably would have also been rather talking about, you know, his, uh, the Great Outdoors Act that he and Steve Daines, another vulnerable Republican, got pushed. But uh, Gardner also had to, you know, kind of run to the right there because the other issue is that a lot of these Republicans could have been facing a primary challenge. Gardner could have. Collins was very much, I think if she hadn't have taken that Kavanaugh vote, she probably would have faced a challenge from uh, the Republican, the former Republican governor there, Paul LePage, who's sort of a mini Trump. And she could have really been ousted there in a primary. So I think that's what it is, is that you have to have some fealty to the base in order to survive a primary. And I think that's why you have Trump and sort of the Trump coalition that is looking at all of this through a very base centric election. But in order to win general election, that elections, that's just making Trump, I think Trump and Senate Republicans largely out of step with where the electorate has moved. Certainly we saw that I think in 2018 with the midterm elections at the house level. And now we are seeing it um, at this, at the Senate level as well. Is this all Trump then? I mean, is it, is it, are, are these Republican senators who are running behind or running far closer than they should be in places like Iowa and Montana? Yeah. Is that primarily because of voters dissatisfaction with Trump or is it a Republican brand thing or is it just certain? I mean, Martha McSally, is it just certain candidates are not doing well? I, I think it's a combination of all of those. I think Trump is sort of the um, you know, root cause of the problem for a lot of people and that you don't have Republicans that in the past four years have really done anything to separate themselves. Um, you know, one word that I've sort of heard Democrats say that they've been hearing in focus groups is that they see these Republican senators as enablers of Trump, that they sort of have 
torn down sort of the guardrails or not respected the guardrails that we typically have there um, in many regards as he sort of, uh, you know, um, done away, you know, sort of run over democratic norms in many instances. And so I think that's why they aren't sort of willing to give them another look. Um, and so, so I think do you, that, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I mean, so I think that's it in Iowa. You have, but I mean, Joni Ernst is also running behind Trump. Tom Tellis, he's running behind Trump even. Um, there is a Trump coalition that I think is still skeptical of some of these because at various times they have slight, slightly tried to buck the party. But then I also think in a place like South Carolina with Lindsey Graham, I think there's just, he, he has a deep distrust that has something partly to do with Trump, but I think with just his own sort of, um, you know, changing positions and really sort of changing who he has been over the past four years. Well, we'll definitely be getting back to that. Um, but I do wonder in places like Arizona mm-hmm. or Iowa, are these voters, the reason I asked about it being, you know, is this just a Trump thing is, I mean, you look at a place like Arizona, which hadn't had Democrat senators in years and in the core, in the span of two years, they're about to have only <laughs> Democrat mm-hmm. senators in all likelihood. Are these states like Arizona, are they trending blue or are they trending blue just for these two years? In, in other words, are they mm-hmm. becoming more conservative? I mean, are they becoming more progressive as voters and trending away from the Republican Party? Or are they just, is it just a referendum on, we don't like this president, get rid of him, and as soon as you get rid of him, we'll probably go back to being Republicans under, you know, whoever else is next. Yeah, I've heard this, you know, I think that's something Democrats are sort of trying to understand and will become trying to understand one Democratic consultant said to me, you know, are we sort of renting these voters for a few years or or are we owning them now? But I think that, you know, if the Republican Party stays where it is, they could have lost some of these voters, you know, for decades, really. In Arizona, the biggest shifts that we see are in the Sun Belt. That's where the population is exploding, where you have um, voters of color um, increasingly moving to. Um, voters with college degrees. And in Arizona there, Maricopa County around Phoenix is about 60% of the overall vote. And that's typically been very Republican territory. And older voters too, right? I mean, older voters, yes. You have a lot of retirees as well. And I I think one of the most telling statistics when we look at at least the presidential race is that Trump is now losing voters over 65. And that has a real down ballot effect too. I mean, seniors were one of the most reliable Republican coalitions, but I think that COVID has really turned them away because not only are, you know, these elderly voters, senior citizens, the most susceptible to the virus, and they'd see him as sort of disregarding safety precautions and downplaying its seriousness. But I mean, they're not able to see their grandchildren. They may have had, you know, friends die of this or at least, you know, be get very, very sick. Um, and so I think that's one reason why we have seen this accelerated change and whether that continues or not. But yeah, in Arizona, we have saw the shift, I think, happening first in 2018. I think Trump has accelerated the shifts that may have been inevitable, but he could have sped it up sort of. And I think that's what we're seeing in Arizona. Also with Martha McSally, I mean, when you lose a Senate race and you have turnaround and you're appointed and then you run another right. for two years, I mean, I don't think she was ever on pace to win this one because voters really, I mean, after they reject you um, and she didn't really sort of change the way that she was running this race at all um, in the in the ensuing two years. And then I think, you know, Mark Kelly there, um, you know, an astronaut is sort of the dream right. profile to run as a candidate who doesn't like astronauts. Right. So, <laughs> Worked for John Glenn. Yeah. And he's certainly got a high profile. I'm, I mean, I, I know yeah. I shouldn't be laughing, but I do laugh a little bit at the Martha McSally yeah. situation because you well, really got to be bad to lose two seats in two years. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I shouldn't right. be that disrespectful. Sorry, Senator McSally. But I mean, you know, she, has, she has a good story. She does. I remember meeting with her when she was running for the House, and she had just a really impressive story. She was one of the more impressive House candidates that I had seen. Um, you know, she was the first female fighter pilot in the Air Force. She talked about, you know, suing, uh, you know, Donald Rumsfeld and the, um, and the defense and defense department for, um, you know, religious freedom on base and not having to wear a hijab over, um, uh, uh, overseas. I mean, she was just a very impressive person. And, um, 
I'm not sure that, I think that, again, she's also someone who, in order to win that primary in 2018, when she had two candidates running very far to the right of her, Kelly Ward, um, who had challenged John McCain in the previous Mm -hmm. primary, and then, you know, infamous Sheriff Joe Arpaio, um, she had to run far to the right. And I think that was sort of not in her natural position, but she's had to sort of keep that position again. And, um, you know, that may have helped her win a primary, but it doesn't help you win a general election in a state like Arizona. And, you know, I have even had Republicans in the state say to me, you know, if she just really emphasized her bio, um, she has a really compelling story, but she hasn't really done that. So if you look at, if you look at polls and you look at Cook ratings, um, there are, if I'm not mistaken, you know them far better than anyone else. There are four states, I believe, right now that Cook anticipates sh- are, are likely to flip or could flip um, to the Democrats, only one to the Republicans. So, uh, obviously, I'm assuming you're still... How do you have Alabama rated right now? We have Alabama as a lean Republican, which might be being a little bit generous there. I mean, that's the number one state that I think is going to flip. Um, Doug Jones, even though he's outspending um, former Auburn football coach there, Tommy Tuberville, um, you know, Roy Moore was such a damaged candidate and Jones even still just barely beat him. And we're not talking about presidential levels, level of turnout that he'll have to face this time. So when I think of that, then they need um, in order to reach at least just 50, 50, when you take that, if Democrats start down one because of that loss, then they need to flip four seats. And you have four set right now. Is that is Arizona, Colorado, Maine, and North Carolina. Are they all, and are they all at least in the in the lean dim category for you? So just two of those are at, uh, are right okay. now. We only have Arizona and Colorado in the lean dim. You know, we are watching the others very closely, and you know, we will be making race changings in these you know final few weeks. Certainly, if things move, I think Maine is probably the next one I would put on that list. And then North Carolina. For a long time, we've thought that that was you know the tipping point state, your your home state there. Um, but then you know we've had a series of oh, I know, I'm here. Yeah. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, um, but but the polls do, and I know Cook has not changed it to not changed and it yet. The the very you know the re- most recent polling that we are seeing out of there is not showing it changing, and you know there's been some local newspapers there that have interviewed people, and a lot of them still say that they're sticking with. Um, they're going to stick with him with 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 Kyle Cunningham, the state senator, former state senator there, um, Army reservist. Um, because they sort of see the election as bigger than about a person. But I mean, Mayor well, I'm gonna give you some folks to call, girl, because <laughs> yeah. because it's been it's been fascinating to me empirical evidence that doesn't count for what you guys actually do real science. I know, but but there there have been quite a few people who I have spoken to here who uh, I've I've heard more people talk about skipping that uh, race on the ballot than I think I've ever heard anyone ever talk about skipping a race on a ballot um, just because fo- people, I've, a lot of folks have been very torn over mm-hmm. not wanting to vote for the Republican, but not being comfortable voting for the Democrats. So I, I was saying to somebody earlier, I'm very interested in seeing the total number of votes for governor here and the mm-hmm. total number of votes for Senator here and seeing if that, how, how many fewer people voted in the Senate race than, um, mm-hmm. than did in governor. But assuming the polls are correct right now and, and North Carolina does go to Cal Cunningham, what are the other states that really Democrats have even a reasonable chance in? Is Are Iowa and Montana actually possible for Democrats to win, either one of them? They, they very much are. I think Iowa is the next possible state. Joni Ernst is in real trouble there. Her um, She's really taken a hit in her favorables. They sort of see her as gone Washington. And, you know, again, this is a state that Trump won by nine points, and he's dead even with Joe Biden in it right now. And, and Montana? Montana, I think they do as well. You know, this is this is more of a candidate-driven race. I mean, we but we've seen the presidential numbers tighten here too, to where Steve Bullock, the governor there, could um, is very much still in it. You know, I've talked with Republicans and Democrats, and this is just, you know, I think Democrats have Bullock up a few points, and Republicans think that Danes is up a few points, but it's within the margin of error, and it's Trump isn't going to win by twenty points here like he did in twenty sixteen. I think it's going to be you know mid single digits perhaps, or you know maybe a little mm. bit higher than that. So it, the 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 tighter presidential numbers could certainly help Bullock sort of pull off the upset there. You also moved Alaska 
a little bit to the left today. It's still lean Republican, but mm-hmm. you moved Alaska to lean Republican instead of likely Republican. What what is an Alaska voter? Because they are <laughs> always they always tend to be a, a safe state for Republicans. But Lisa Murkowski, right? And so now you're moving right. Dan Sullivan's race okay. to the left a little bit. What does an Alaska voter look like, and what's going on up there? So Alaska is a very hard state to pull. You know, Dan Sullivan won this race for uh, six years ago by defeating Martin Begich, who had won in the 2008, you know, sort of uh, earthquake with President Obama. And Ted Stevens was ousted there, who was under federal investigation and indictment. Um, So a a little bit of controversy sort of helped him get in there. And then, of course, Republican 2014 was more of a wave year. I mean, you know, they have very unique issues to them. They had a debate this past weekend that I watched. It was all about fisheries, most of it. Um, So, I mean, you're talking about fishing, they're talking about um, hunting and you know while I you know the um you know pebble mine uh, there has become a big issue. So I mean it's a lot about preservation of their lands as well. And who but is the Democrat? Well, he's a Democrat. He's running as the Democratic nominee, but he's actually an independent. Al Gross. Um, he's a orthopedic. He's an orthopedic surgeon. Um, he's a commercial fisherman. His father actually uh, was the was a Democrat, was the, wasn't a former attorney general there, but he was a a Democratic attorney general under a Republican governor there, Jay Hammond, who helped um, create, together they created the Alaska Permanent Fund, which is a dividend that goes to all Alaskans each year. Oh, well, so so you're saying that Al Gross is a registered independent, but he is running Mm -hmm. as the Democrat. He would caucus with the Democrats if he won. Exactly. But so, I mean, he, he's hoping that sort of that, you know, saying I, I would caucus with Democrats because I'm sort of fed up with how Republicans have acted over Trump. But, um, you know, I would there's still issues where I would be independent. For instance, he's very fiscally conservative. He was really hitting in that debate, um, a, a debate with Sullivan sort of hitting him for not being fiscally conservative enough, because I think, you know, if there's one sort of, you know, Republican core principle that the Trump administration has just completely obliterated. It's not certainly, you know, a, a fiscal conservatism that we saw that the Tea mm. Party wanted in 2010. So, you know, he's sort of hitting them sort of on that. Um, but, you know, and Alaska is also a very pro-choice state. I think that's where Murkowski is very much in line with the state. And I think, you know, they're kind of hoping that with this, uh, with the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett and, um, you know, a woman's right to choose and Roe v. Wade being up there that, um, that that could sort of move some, move some votes too. So we're seeing tightening there and Trump has become, you know, his, he's seen his numbers sink here in Alaska as well. I mean, this is a state that has only voted for a Democrat once before for president since it became a state. Um, but we're seeing, you know, Democrats are seeing some encouraging numbers that, uh, numbers there. Republicans are beginning to get worried. We now have the ma- major Republican super PAC Senate leadership fund spending money there. The National Republican Senatorial Committee is um, going up on air there tomorrow with an ad. And gross, like so many of this, I mean, the other thing to think about with this map, and one reason why it's so large is that Democrats have just overwhelmed Republicans with the amount of money that they have been able to raise. And a lot right, of that, that was... Mm-hmm. That was going to be a part of my next question, which was how do you decide what we're all looking at polls, mm-hmm. right? I look at my I check my 538 every day, yeah. <laughs> every morning, five times a day, see what poll came out, etc. But you guys use so much more when you decide to move a yeah. race into a different column. What made you want to move the Alaska race and what factors do you put into it when you move or don't move other races? I mean, listen, we talk to a lot of sources of what they're seeing there on the ground. We talk with people that are working in races. Um, you know, we want to sort of get a feel for, pe- you know, people that are in state that are seeing things that we can't, especially this year when we can't travel anywhere. Um, uh, and so, you know, we rely on a lot of, we get a lot of private data that's shown to us too, that, you know, we, we can't publish, but influences our ratings. And then, you know, we, we look at candidate quality and fundraising too. So, you know, we are, I would say that our ratings are a mix of qualitative and quantitative data. Um, you know, and I, I love 538 as well, but I think they are looking at through a more a statistical lens where I do think that, you know, candidate quality can matter in some of these races. Um, you know, for wave election, it, it may not. And that's why I think that's some of the moves that I've made recently when we're seeing, you know, Biden with a pretty steady, you know, 10 point lead and in that 538 average. And it's been, you know, seven, eight points pretty steadily and has sort of risen um, since the debate, really. 
Um, and that has a major down ballot impact. So, I mean, I think Alaska, again, that's a state that you have a candidate there that is sort of unique. Um, he will be listed on the ballot as a Democrat. They were hope they, they had hoped that there was sort of a loophole where he could be listed as an independent, but that ruling went against them. So Republicans hope that could kind of, you know, work in their favor a little bit. And they're, you know, arguing, well, Al Gross, he, he says he's independent, but Democrats are bankrolling his campaign and all of this, um, the super PAC money that's coming in. Um, but, but you're seeing, you know, also, I think it's just when you, you know, I've watched a lot of these debates, the Senate debates over the past few weeks. And, you know, you can just kind of tell when, a, when some of these candidates and incumbents are on, are on edge. And I think, um, you know, that debate that I watched over the weekend, you could really see that Sullivan, um, you know, was really just repeatedly, I think he said Chuck Schumer at least a dozen times, uh, you know, were really worried and they're trying to tie them to the national party. They're trying to, um, you know, say, you know, if, Democrats take a majority in the Senate, they would, um, you know, pack the Supreme Court, they would eliminate the filibuster, they would, um, you know, make DC and Puerto Rico a state. So they're, they're trying to, you know, they would push this liberal agenda as where Republicans are saying, but, but I think it's sort of missing the forest for the trees in some instance, because I think what most voters are concerned about are care, And that's an issue which, again, it may have lost um, Democrats the House in 2010, but it won it back for them in 2018 with so many of its from uh, with so many of its provisions, especially uh, you know pre-existing protecting pre-existing conditions that that are now vital, and I think even more vital in a pandemic that people are really really afraid of losing. And Republicans really, you know, for for saying for you know really six years that they were going to repeal and replace it, they haven't come up with a viable alternative. And then when you have the Trump administration that is actively suing in court and that the Supreme Court is going to hear arguments about a week after the election, healthcare is still the biggest issue. And again, I think it's something that's only become magnified amidst this pandemic. 13 days of Halloween. A remote hotel. This, my friend, is Hawthorne Manor. The most unusual guests. They sound like someone you trust. Trick or treat! No, sweetie, don't touch it. Don't look at it. A tour guide that can't be trusted. Was it luck or fate that placed you here? We'll never know. And the newest arrival is you. Why are you here again? I know. Starring Keegan-Michael Key as the caretaker. Please make yourself at home. After all, this is it. Produced in three-dimensional binaural audio to place you right in the center of the story in ways you'll have to hear to believe. For full exposure, listen with headphones or AirPods. One story each night, starting October 19th and ending on Halloween. From iHeartRadio and Blumhouse Television, listen to Aaron Mankey's 13 Days of Halloween on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dr. Wendy Walsh, host of the podcast Mating Matters. I believe nearly every human behavior is motivated by a desire for love, sex, or to hedge your reproductive odds. I think women have this ability to plant these mental bombs into a man's mind. But the thing about humor is that the value of humor, it goes up. We're wired to reproduce. To them, it was a super female. It was a giant female. And they were lured into, um, into trying to mate with it. The science of love is fascinating. It's a bizarre form of biohacking, really. If you have the seven or plus gene, you are more likely to be involved in an affair, yes. That's where some of the research gets really intriguing. There's so many ways to be a human. But I must say, sex between three people can get complicated. In a nutshell, the Kinsey scale looked at two things, sexual fantasies and actual sexual behavior. Listen to Mating Matters on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Well, you talked about money, and so, uh, and then and I, I'm curious, obviously, as to how much fundraising goes into your decisions as to where to place a candidate, what category to put a race in. I got to say, I mean... I was probably, I was floored when you moved South Carolina <laughs> to toss up. Um, you know, you're from the South and you, mm-hmm. you went to school in South Carolina, right? I did. I so did. you know, South, South Carolina, Carolina. Carolina. What University. <laughs> the hell 
is going on there. <laughs> I mean, seriously, the idea that it's even possible for mm-hmm. Lindsey Graham to lose there. So, I mean, I always assumed Lindsey Graham would go out in a primary. Yeah. <laughs> Never in a general. So the fact that you have South Carolina in a toss up, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm just saying, okay, it's very, it's nice and pretty to look at, but I mean, come on, <laughs> we know he's going to, he's going to pull it off. But if Cook Political Report says it's a toss up, I have to think there's a real chance that, that Harrison could pull it off. Tell me all about South Carolina because I'm fascinated. Yeah, I mean, it's my favorite race, too, to look at, I think, again, because as you said, I've, I've spent, a, you know, time there in college and a lot of time back thereafter with friends that have stayed in the state. And, you know, there's just something going on there. And I think that, first of all, there's a lot of Republicans that are really sort of frustrated at Graham that he really sort of didn't take this race seriously enough. I think you're right. I think he thought... No one has changed more than Lindsey Graham, I think, over the past few years, because, I mean, this oh, is a man who called, you know, Trump a race-baiting, xenophobic, um, you know, religious bigot. And, and now he's, you know, golfing buddies with him. And but is it, is it that disingenuousness? Is it the hypocrisy it that are making people not like him? Or is it the supporting of Trump, period? I, I think that Graham, Graham was able to win, you know, independents and Democrats in the state. Um, because I think they looked at him and saw, okay, he's probably as good as we could do as well. Um, you know, and so he got a lot of crossover voters and now Democrats have a real cannon to vote for. And then I think that disingenuousness, it's not completely repaired, um, his, image with even conservatives. So, you know, when I dug into some of the crosstabs here, um, you know, Graham still is struggling with even just base Republican voters. And then still, still, yeah, I mean, it's, it's improved somewhat, but here's the, here's, this was a Quinnipiac poll. 50% of people say that he is not trustworthy. Um, and only three quarters of Republicans think he is honest. And, I think those are high numbers. If you ask me, I'm surprised. (laughs) And then the Supreme court, I think he really thought again, that since he's Senate judiciary, um, Senate judiciary chairman, that again, the Barrett nomination would sort of bring people back. But then he had his, you know, the hold the tape. If, if there's another vacancy Mm -hmm. during the Trump term and we won't fill it like we did with Merrick Garland. Um, And that was just playing ad nauseum across the state. I heard from multiple people. And I think that really sort of played into the, can we really trust him? And then there's another sort of thing here at play that I think is an undercurrent, not just the, the trust that sort of plays into that distrust. And I've heard this, that Democrats say is brought up repeatedly in focus groups. It's not just that he's, you know, sort of, switched on Trump and became there. Lindsey Graham's best friend in the Senate was John McCain and they were, Mm -hmm. you know, inseparable. And I think a lot of people saw how could you be, be so close to this president that repeatedly mocked John McCain and continues to and and denigrated his service. Right. Exactly. You know, while he was sick before he was sick and after he died. So I think that really kind of cast this, you know, really sort of questioned his, you know, ethics and credibility, really. Um, And so I think that that's sort of an undercurrent that I think is happening here as well. And I mean, Jamie Harrison needed a lot of things to go right. And everything has so far where I think, again, Lindsey Graham's numbers were softer than we believed. Um, And uh, he's really energizing African-American voters for the first time in the state. Um, Again, Democrats have a credible candidate and he's, you know, speaking very bipartisan in a way. I think another thing, you know, if you watch some of his ads, they are a lot of white older women saying, I voted for Lindsey Graham for a long time, but I don't trust him. Um, I don't trust him on health care. I don't trust him to make the right decisions anymore. So it's sort of saying to, you know, women voters, especially, it's okay. You can cross party lines. Um, and I think that's happening some. And I what? think he's winning over, you know, some white college educated women too. And, you know, in places like Greenville, where I went to college, I mean, Charleston, we've seen a massive shift there. Of course, Joe Cunningham flipped that house seat in 2018 and he's on pace to pretty easily win it again, it looks like. So there are pockets of South Carolina. Certainly it's still, I think, conservative at, at its core. And of course, those rural areas are still going to be very conservative, but, you know, just something's happening there. 
Well, at the risk of de- talking too much about South Carolina, we're, we're going to do some episodes on swing states. So I want to fo- I want to really get as much info on South Carolina as I can because it's not a swing state. Um, <laughs> what's what's going to make the difference on election day or in the in the days the early voting days in South Carolina? What's going to make the difference for Lindsey Graham or Jamie Harrison to move it out of toss up? Is it a is it a persuasion thing for Jamie Harrison that he needs to continue to persuade more voters? Is it a turnout thing? If you had $58 million to spend yeah. and you were Jamie Harrison, how would you spend it? Would you spend it on ads or would you spend it on field? <laughs> Getting well, people to the has, polls. He has it to spend on both when you have that much. Well, when you have that much in South Carolina, you can buy the TV station. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't think he's going to be wanting for reasons. There's a couple of things I would watch here, though, too. I think he's going to spend it on field and motivation. And if he can really get, get African-American voters out at historic levels in the state. And I think turn, if turnout is up overall, really, that I mean, we've even seen long lines. Um, forming, you know, in the first few days of early voting there last week. And I think that's sort of indicative of a level of enthusiasm that we really haven't seen. And here's something else to watch. Uh, You know, I was hesitant to move this for a long time, even though the polls were showing this, you know, dead tight. Um, Because I do think a Democrat in a state like South Carolina has a ceiling of about 47, 48% of the vote. Mm -hmm. There is a third party candidate on the ballot. That was going to be my next question. We're on the same wavelength. The Constitution Party candidate. Um, now he has dropped out of the race and endorsed Lindsey Graham, but he still remains on the ballot. And Harrison's and running ads for him Harrison or against him, right? Yes, he's running digital ads, sort of trying to prop up uh, Bledsoe and sort of. So that's sort of, I think, the strategy too. You know, when Democrats were sort of talking about this quietly, and now it's, I think, very much more out in the open that you know if they can sort of. I think that that's where it goes to, okay, you don't like Lindsay, you don't have to vote for him. There is a Trump conservative, quote unquote, on the ballot. You can cast that vote. So if he brings Graham's total down enough, he doesn't have to win with 50% of the vote. He can win with, you know, 47, 48%. That, that whole, again, South Carolina just blowing my mind this time. (laughs) Um, I want to talk a little bit about presidential politics too, Mm because you, you know, the states and the whole states everywhere. But before we move to that, just quick brief brush on uh, gubernatorial races i know you cover those for uh, mm-hmm. cook also there really aren't really even any competitive races in the country this year in the governor's mansions are there so i think the most competitive one is probably uh, montana we rate that one as a toss up an open seat there with uh, steve bullock um, term limited and running for governor um it's the only race we have in a toss-up. Uh, Greg Gianforte, the congressman there, who you may remember from his body slamming a reporter, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> is running against uh, Democratic Lieutenant Governor Mike Cooney. Um, we've seen Gianforte get a little bit of a polling lead there. I still think it could be really tight, really close, though. But Gianforte, I might give a slight edge to. And you know, Democrats really came back in governor's races over in 2018 and in 2019 to the point where um, they're almost now at near parity, which they were at record lows in 2016. So um, Republicans overall still have 26 of the governorships. Um, Democrats have 24. Um, that Montana seat could add one for uh, Republicans, if they flip it from Democrat to Republican, which again, you think of Montana as a pretty red state, but they've actually held the governor's mansion there for 16 years now. And, and interestingly, too, Vermont's had a Republican governor for a hot second, too, yeah. hasn't it? What is that yeah. all about? Well, and New Hampshire. Yeah, Vermont. Um, I rate that race now as solid Republican. Uh, so the only two states that still elect their uh uh, their governors to two-year terms are New New Hampshire and Vermont. So those are up every two years. Phil Scott has, I think, shown how to be a New England Republican, but I think that's much easier to do when you're a governor and you're not in sort of federal, um, you know, right. pressure like Susan Collins is. So he can criticize Trump. He can, he said he's not going to vote for Trump. He might vote for Joe Biden. He's also, I mean, his approval rating on his handling of coronavirus is in the 80%. Um, you know, so he's got really high approval ratings. He's got a lot of crossover support, even from Democrats. Um, he's going to easily win that race. And, um, you know, again, it's, it's really, it is really sort of unfathomable that, you know, a state like Vermont can have a governor, but I mean, he's, he's someone who, has not had blowback because he's broken with his party and with Trump. 
So are, with the exception of Vermont, which clearly votes mm-hmm. <laughs> very independently <laughs> with all their races, um, we're kind of headed towards a place, it seems like, when I look at these maps, mm-hmm. where the states all have an identity. I, I'm, I guess I'm thinking back to, gosh, 10, 15, 20 years ago at, at the most, when so many states split their senators, you'd have a Republican and a Democrat. And after this election, if, if things go the way Cook is, con- is handicapping them, Alabama will be back to two Republicans. Arizona will likely be back to, t- will be at two Democrats. Colorado will be at two Democrats. Um, heck, even Montana might be at two Democrats. We're getting to a place where very few states have senators from different parties. I think what Wisconsin does, West Virginia does, they're just not many. Are, this, are we that polarized to where even within a state, it's all based on how you vote at the national level? We are. It's almost become parliamentary in the way that we have elections. Um, Pew has done some research on that, Pew Research Center, which is another really great resource. And you know, back in like 84, you actually, and, you know, 86 and 88, you actually did have um, more Republicans, or, or excuse me, more just senators that represented states that had um, their presidential results differed from right. their own party's preference. Right now, um, 77% of senators are um, are from the um, same party is their presidential last presidential vote i was fascinated to learn that north carolina has not split its senator president ticket since 1964 did not know that i never i didn't know that either and and that (laughs) may be a reason that it's not time to move north carolina out of toss-up in the senate column until we know what's going on I think it's just very close. Even before the Cunningham scandal, you know, even when it was showing him with wider leads, I was having Democrats tell me, we think this is going to tighten. We think that this is going to tighten. I think just the presidential race is going to be very close. I think the Senate race, especially now, and perhaps even before was going to be very close. But, you know, going back to governor's races for a minute there, like Roy Cooper, I think is going to win re-election oh, very easily. Walk He's someone away. That is, uh, you know, has a lot of some cross party appeal there and is probably is definitely going to pick off some Trump voters too. So he's going to, I think, win another term pretty easily there. But, but those States that, that, you know, Arizona is about mm-hmm. to elect its second Democrat to the Senate and is very likely to vote for, to vote for Trump as well. What about Florida? I don't, if, I don't know that Arizona is going to vote for Trump. We actually, I'm being hopeful. I told you I'm a Democrat girl. I'm going to be hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on in Florida, though? Florida, I think, you know, we have this, Florida's sort of the ultimate toss-up, really. Um, And, uh, you know... Is it smart uh, for a Marco Rubio, who's got to run again in two years, is it smart for him to be so supporting Trump so much? Should he be reading the writing on the wall here and seeing that his state isn't as in love with Donald Trump as he is right now? Um, I think there's going to be a reckoning of some of these senators that are up in 2022 and just of the Republican party overall of, you know, you know, what if, you know, do they sort of keep those Trumpian elements of the party or is the, are they going to see both 2018 and looks increasingly likely like 2020 that is going to be a rejection of that. Um, Florida, again, I think this is a place where you see the senior vote is obviously hugely important. And we are seeing that moving away from Trump and toward Biden. But Biden, I think another thing to watch here in Florida is that, um, you know, Biden still, I think, has a problem with some sectors sections of the Hispanic vote. Um, Cuban Americans here, especially in Florida, are typically more conservative um, than, you know, some Latino voters, for instance, in Arizona. Um, So I think that Trump could still make some inroads there, you know, when he talks about socialism and sort of the threat of that, that that's something that resonates with, you know, Cuban American families or Venezuelan American families, perhaps more. Um, I think it's going to be very close. But I will say, you know, another thing that obviously I think is sort of at the back of a lot of our minds is that, you know, are we going to know on election night who wins or is Trump going to try to sort of declare victory because we do expect the, um, 
you know, sort of election day vote to favor him, but, you know, the mail-in vote and early vote to favor Democrats. But I think Florida could really tell us very early on in the night, early on because they are they are a state that could, that is expected they've to already have. started counting haven't they right exactly they've already started counting and you know who would have thought you know 20 years later after 20 um after 2000 that we would be saying we're going to trust florida is going to be right the first you know we, we trust <laughs> right now. Um, this really could be the case and you know florida with his 29 electoral votes i don't there, there's if if trump loses florida there's essentially no path for him to 270. And and the other state that may also not make it possible for Trump to win if he doesn't win, correct me if I'm wrong, Pennsylvania is on the other end of that spectrum when it when it comes to counting ballots. They are, tell me if I'm wrong here, they are a state that doesn't begin their electoral, their their absentee ballot counting until election day. Is that right? Um, I think that is, uh, and, um, but they're also, they're, they're also one of the only other states that have two, two different, two senators from different parties. So it's, you know, it's, it's a, it, is it still a swing state? Um, well, is it, although, I mean, uh, Pat Toomey there has already said that he is not going to, um, yeah, why you do know, you think that is? Re-election. I, I mean, I think he sees the state is changing. Um, you know, we kind of expected him to run for governor, but he, but he's not. And I think that he, he may be sort of seeing the tea leaves too. So, you know, we have our first vacancy of 2022, which I'm not even going to think about until after this is over. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, I do think it's, uh, it's, it's certainly changing. So. Well, my producers want me to ask you about the state that is going to keep you busy after this election, um, Georgia. Georgia, because you'll still have a you'll still have a race um, to worry about in Georgia in January. Um, who's it going to be between in January? So I will say it might not just be one race; it could be two races. You know, we have the two races happening in Georgia, and in that regular election between David Perdue and John Ossoff, if no candidate gets to fifty percent in that race either, wait, what? Okay, well, but what you just blew my mind. I didn't know this. That yep. matters there too. It does. It does. Shut it, up. It, yeah, it's happened before. Um, in two thousand eight, uh, uh, that race went to a runoff as well. Um, the Republican ended up winning easily, Saxby Chambliss. Um, but but yeah, Georgia has it is Georgia's election law that a candidate has to get fifty percent. So that one could be going to a runoff. Is there a third party candidate in that also there is, Purdue there race? Is, there's a libertarian that could sort of take off some of the vote and uh, Republicans and Democrats that I've talked to probably well over a dozen in the past few weeks uh, believe that is going to happen. So I think we're going to have two races there. Um, and then the other one, which what? I know is, one about, um, <laughs> is the special election. So uh, yeah, this is a jungle primary because it's a special election and um, a, the appointed Senator is Kelly Leffler Um and, you know, she was appointed by Brian Kemp sort of over the, you know, protests of the White House because I think he did sort of see the writing on the wall that happened in 2018 in, in those Atlanta suburbs that they needed someone that could appeal to, you know, sort of suburban women. Um, and so Leffler, she's a businesswoman. Uh, her husband um, owns the, you know, owns the parent company of the New York Stock Exchange. She's part owner of the Atlanta Dream, the WNBA franchise there. But then you had Doug Collins that got in and sort of ruined their plans. You know, this is who the White House wanted to appoint, um, one of the fiercest defenders of Trump during the um, impeachment hearings. And he forced her to sort of have to run to the right and to sort of prove her conservative bona fides. And now they are just running as far to the right as is humanly possible. I mean, Gleffler is even running an ad where, not just one ad, there's a series of ads where she talks about, um, com- says that she's more conservative than Attila the Hunt. Oh, I saw that one. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. um, there's three of them. Um, I'm not exactly sure how that appeals to suburban women in Atlanta. Um, and but so she's running I mean. ahead of him right now as a Collins, correct? She is now again. Yeah, she had, I think, a sort of a rocky launch with some questions about stock trades that she made. But um, she's recovered from that. And Collins just doesn't have money right now. And she's self-funding her race. I mean, she's a multimillionaire. She and her husband are. But I think that you know this is a race I moved as well today into the toss-up column because it 
I think it's become clear that it is going to be a Democrat and a Republican. And the most likely Democrat there who is now polling in first um, is uh, Raphael Warnock. He's um, uh, African-American pastor, uh, leads the Ebenezer Baptist Church there in Atlanta, which is Martin Luther King's church, so a very historic church. Um, and I think he you know, has the potential to, again, sort of energize African-American voters in the state in a way that Stacey Abrams did as well. And, you know, when I looked at this, and especially with both races sort of going to that, um, you know, Perdue, David Perdue has run you know, sort of more of a, you know, not fully moderate campaign, but not certainly as far to the right as uh, Kelly Leffler has. I mean, she's, she, you know, she and Collins are sort of, you see them sort of pandering to the right. She's appeared with, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, this, the QAnon candidate down mm-hmm. there that's going to win a congressional race. So I, I just find it really hard of how she's going to sort of move toward the middle in the two months that of the ensuing runoff. And so I think that Well, having, that a, having a second race in January would hurt her likely more because she'd be... I, I, I'm, my mind again, you've blown my mind so many times tonight, <laughs> that you can that you can run that they may have a Purdue Ossoff race mm-hmm. and a Leffler Warnock race yeah. on the same ballot in January. Yeah. If Georgia's anything like North Carolina, and I know that there are plenty of similarities, I would imagine there will be a lot of people who will split it just for pragma- pragmatic reasons. Mm-hmm. I'm going to vote for one Republican and one Democrat. And if, if I'm splitting it, I probably vote for Purdue and Warnock because Kelly Leffler has is a till of the hunt, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it could I mean, be, very, be really interesting. I think we won't fully know the dynamics of one or both of those runoffs until we know the presidential race and, and the Senate numbers too. Are these two races that could determine Senate control? Right. Could right. it determine how big Democrats' Senate majority could be? So, I mean, we could not know who controls the Senate until January. And then, you know, what's the outcome of the presidential election? If Biden wins, can Democrats sort of keep up um, that energy all the way to January? Um, do Trump, do, do dejected Trump voters not turn out or are they sort of re-energized? Um, I think there's just a lot of unknowns that we... Right, and then the National Party has nothing else to do in November, December, and January, ostensibly. So maybe they throw more money into it. Um, I want to move on to quick fire. We ask our listeners to uh, send in questions for our guest every week. You can do that at podcasts at politicon.com via email podcasts at politicon.com or send them to us on Twitter or Instagram at Politicon. These questions were sent in specifically for you tonight. And I looks as if though I have um, accidentally asked half of them <laughs> myself <laughs> because I've been so fascinated. <laughs> but let's try. Ophelia, Ophelia from San Francisco asks, does raising $58 matter? Uh, $58. I'm sorry, $58 million. Does raising $58 million matter? Yeah, $58 dollars $58 might not. $58 million, does it matter? Uh, I think it does. I mean, Harrison has, um, I think the money sort of got him noticed sort of early on and forced Graham into a defensive posture. And I don't think, you know, if he was raising this money early on, um, Graham would have been there. And, you know, again, you know, we say it's, you know, may seem hard to us about how to spend that money in South Carolina, but multiple people I've talked to are like, there's ways you can spend it. You can run these more targeted ads. You can do digital ads. You can do voter outreach. I mean, my goodness, for that much, you could have someone drive each individual person to the polls. Right. Um, but at I, some point, is it just, I mean, if money mattered that much, wouldn't Amy McGrath be closer to Mitch McConnell? That's a good point. I think this is where candidate quality comes in. I do. Um, Amy McGrath has some very early missteps. I don't think she's been running as sort of targeted and as strong of a campaign. And Harrison, I think just, you know, when we look at this, this is, again, why we use sort of qualitative and quantitative um, data uh, to to sort of make these determinations. I think that Harrison has been a better campaigner, um, really, and McGrath sort of never really found her sea legs, really. So um, I do think the money in in Kentucky is, you know... um, is perhaps diminishing returns, but also remember Kentucky Trump won that state by 30 points. Um, Trump only won South Carolina by 14 points. And I think South Carolina also, you have a much higher African-American population than you do in short in Kentucky at all. And when you have an African-American candidate, I mean, think of this too. Um, if Jamie Harrison wins, 
South Carolina, the place where the Civil War started, mm-hmm. would be the first state in history to have two black senators. Right. I know. Yeah. And, and, if, and if Jamie Harrison doesn't win, then he's coming for Tim Scott in two years, probably. <laughs> um, I think he's for governor. Oh, um, interesting. That might, in, you know, we see some to Southern governors, um, you know, uh, um, you know, Andy Bashir in Kentucky, John Bell Edwards in Louisiana. Right. So he could have a And South show. Carolina has had a Democrat governor far more recently than it has had yeah. a, a Democrat senator. Yeah. Um, uh, Emily from Virginia Beach asks, well, I'm going to save that one. Um, <laughs> let me ask, uh, what uh, Nate from Durham. Hey, hey, Nate from Durham. Oh, he asks, do sexting scandals still matter in 2020? <laughs> Uh, right now it doesn't look like it does. I think, you know, Republicans still were, um, it sounds like we might actually get a, a, a cunning, uh, excuse me, a tell poll out tomorrow. So we'll see what his numbers say. Um, I, I do feel like they've been a little more encouraged in recent days by this, um, you know, or like you were saying, you know, your friends there, do they skip that race? I, I think it's just what else comes out. I don't think Cunningham has done a good job of managing this. I think he should have gotten out ahead of it. Although he did put out the news on perhaps the, you know, best day that he could when, you know, every, the president. When Tillis had just gotten coronavirus too. Well, and Kellyanne Conway and Bill Stepien, Trump's campaign manager. I mean, it was just felt like every hour somebody else was confirmed to get coronavirus. I will um, say the question on the the poll that was just released this week, Survey mm-hmm. USA just did a poll, I guess, came out yesterday, the day before, being giving my own personal opinion here, um, which I often do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was surprised by the question because the question asked specifically sort of what Nate asked. Do uh-huh. do sexting scandals, do does mar- marital infidelity, does that matter to you? And I don't believe, at least from the ads that I see in North Carolina, that that Tom Tillis is running against the infidelity or running against the, uh, you know, the fact that Cal Cunningham cheated on his wife, but he is running against what people might see as hypocrisy or dishonesty, sort of the same thing that's hurt Lindsey Graham in South Carolina. And that question wasn't asked. The question was, and I think, I think for the most part, you know, I don't, all these people who I've talked to, they don't really have a problem with the the infidelity. We've got a president who grabs women by the privates. Um, So that's not the issue. The issue is you ran a certain way and in the middle of your election, you pulled a John Edwards, which, you know, we did that already in North Carolina. So um, I think that's, so that that poll didn't really answer the question yeah, I for mean, me, that I think needs to be answered. Voters that it didn't affect their vote, but I think some of them were probably with Cunningham. I will just throw out this stat um, <laughs> and do with it what you will. Um, when I looked at that poll and I looked at the one that they had done in September, in September, Tillis was actually leading among men by 11 points. In this new poll, Cunningham was leading among men by two points. So oh, Cunningham will lead with men. So, you know, read into that what you will. Well, this is why, Jessica, Jessica, you're the pro. You get into the weeds and get into all those cross tabs. So um, last question. Emily from Virginia Beach asks, what could be the biggest upsets? And then she puts in parentheses, only one right answer. I don't know what that part means, but what could be, what do you think the biggest upsets could be um, this year across the board? Um, I think that Alaska race could, would qualify as an upset. And I think, mm. you know, South Carolina, even though we rated as competitive, I, you know, uh, in talking with you here, I mean, you know, I, I think this is what a lot of Southern Democrats have. They sort of can't believe that their states are changing or that they could be in play. And I think that's sort of the same thing happening in South Carolina. So again, I think if a Jamie Harrison were to win, you have a state like South Carolina, like I mentioned, that has such a fraught racial history, um, would have two African American senators. I think that sends a huge message yeah. that could, you know, that certainly would be a massive upset too. I guess it depends, Emily, on how you define Emily, the listener, on yeah. how you define upset. If it's a sleeper race, okay, yeah. Alaska, no one's really paying attention to it. Surprise, Democrats got another seat. But if you want to talk about a Eric Cantor sized what yeah. the heck, or an AOC beating uh-huh. in the pro- certainly if if you know Lindsey Graham is probably the most visible one of at least one of the most visible senators in the Senate mm-hmm. to have him lose and, would and be. I think that- 
partly why Harrison is getting a lot of money in the same way that Amy McGrath gets a lot of money. It's about who they're running against too. Not that Harrison is not a compelling candidate. He very clearly is. But um, I think a lot of that money is because, you know, Lindsey Graham has said it repeatedly on Fox News and in the hearings this morning that, um, you know, they hate me. They really hate me. And that is true for, you know, most of, most of both of their money comes in from out of state, which is really the norm in most of these races now. And we saw a lot of it come in in the, you know, hours and days after um, Justice Ginsburg's death. And I think that was a major part that was fueling that, you know, $58, 57000000 million as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we will see what happens on election night. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure you're ready for that. So uh, the, the point of this podcast is to try to figure out how, I mean, the question I was asking earlier about partisanship mm-hmm. and how we've just, it really is just, are you red or are you blue? And you vote that way. And, you know, I get frustrated because I'm blue, but I still am frustrated by the fact that, you know, what's the point of trying to be moderate? Because if you are like Susan Collins, it doesn't matter. You're not, Yeah, you weren't blue enough. Or if you try to be moderate, Cory Gardner has no motivation for appeasing the people in the middle because they won't, Democrats won't vote for him anyway. So the purpose of the podcast is, is to try to figure out why we've become so partisan. And if we're going to stay partisan, how can we live together? So I asked the same question yeah. of everybody at the end. You dig into what's going on in all of these states. You get to see the partisanship more than most people do because you're really looking at it. How the heck are we going to get along? Well, you know, I think there are some encouraging signs that we can look at. You know, a lot of these, you know, House members that were elected in 2018 that really are sort of moderate or have, you know, very military backgrounds or national security backgrounds like Abigail Spanberger, um, for instance, look like they're going to win again. And I think there is some sort of moderation there in the House. And then, you know, some of these senators that could get elected, these Democratic senators, I don't think they're going to be ideologues. I don't think Jamie Harrison is, you know, he's running on a very, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, pragmatic position. Um, Mark Kelly in Arizona, sort of the same way. Um, I, Cal Cunningham, if he overcomes the sexting, I think would be the, the, the same again. So, you know, I'm not sure, but then you're right. We do lose, you know, sort of those Republican moderates that have worked across the aisle, like Susan Collins. I mean, we lost a lot of those Democrats in 2018 as well. Claire McCaskill, Joe Donnelly, mm-hmm. Heidi Heitkamp too. Um, so, you know, I, I do think though, you know, Republican Democrats are not running, um, you know, very, liberal candidates in in some of these states. So, you know, does that stay? Because, I mean, certainly um, Republicans are trying to sort of paint them as, you know, sort of AOC acolytes and stuff too. And I'm not sure that's resonating with voters. And then I think a lot of it comes down to what does the Republican Party look like post-Trump? Um, I know a lot of Republicans are wondering that themselves, <laughs> um, and we just don't really know. Um, and whether the Democrats also, by the way, yeah. are able to are able to embrace and accept yeah. those moderate Republicans who those moderate Democrats who do win. Because if Steve Bullock were to win in Montana, he would likely do a lot of what Joe Manchin does in West Virginia, are Democrats going to be reasonable enough to think, to realize we shouldn't primary him in six years because we should be happy. We have a, we have a, we have a Senator, two senators from Montana who are Democrats and we shouldn't be trying to, to put AOCs in Arizona uh, against Mark Kelly. You see some of that happening. I think that's sort of, uh, the Democrats have to be cautious. And I will say, you know, we have seen a lot of times when, um, when either party sort of gets unified control that that can sort of go to their heads a little bit, you know, um, Democrats got a major backlash after, you know, Obama won and, um, they had unified control and then they lost the house two years later. Well, Trump won, they had unified control. They lose the house two years later again. And I think that overreaching is something that voters sort of don't like. And I think Democrats are going to really have to be cautious because you mentioned there, I don't think a Joe Manchin, I don't think a Steve Bullock um, is going to, a Mark Kelly doesn't look like they would, you know, go along with, you know, some of the more, um, 
you know, progressive things that people are pushing for, um, you know, like abolishing the filibuster. I think there's a lot of people that would be more institutionalists, um, perhaps in there. And I think Joe Manchin would be, you know, someone as well. Um, so, you know, but I do think that, you know, it depends on which elements of the democratic party sort of continue to reign supreme. And, you know, Politics is about ebbs and flows. Democrats are up sometimes. Republicans are down sometimes, you know. Um, and right now, I think Democrats are rising, but I think they have to sort of, you know, they um, they sort of can't let that power go to their head or, or, or overreach again because voters have a way of sort of bringing them back down to reality. And, you know, that that may, I think that's sort of maybe how our system is supposed to work. Those, those, um, those checks are supposed to be there. Well, I'll say that it gives me great hope, or I guess that's the word, um, that in your in your Cook ratings, you have, I think, 14 races of the ones that are up to 30, how many up this year, 35, um, that are up yes. this year that are in the lean or the toss-up category. Uh-huh. So a lot more, a lot more towards the middle um, yeah. in, in lean or toss-up than certainly your counterpart at the House has. There are yeah, just not many competitive seats in the House anymore. And well, the fact that there yeah. are some in the Senate is is nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, you know, that that's, I think, because of redistricting, too. And, you know, we're going to, you know, redraw these lines after this election and stuff, too. And I, I hope that, you know, one thing to maybe take away is I think we are seeing people getting engaged. And I think this is going to be the highest turnout presidential election that we've ever seen. Um, you know, 140 million, 150 million. And I think just when more people participate in the process, I think that's just good for democracy. I think that is the perfect place to leave it. I agree with you completely. Um, if if you don't know about the Cook Political Report, if you're listening to us, you you know who the Cook Political <laughs> Report is. Um, they are absolutely the leaders and the best at what they do when it comes to to handicapping these races. Almost forty years of doing it, and and I would be lost without them. Um, probably a little too expensive for people to subscribe <laughs> to one hundred percent, like full year round. But um, definitely, when you see Cook, Cook Political Report, you know that you can count on their race ratings to to kind of give you an idea of where things are going. And I have to say, it personally and selfishly, when I ran for Congress, um, Dave Wasserman interviewed me, and he moved my race from solid Republican to likely Republican. And that was a huge compliment for me <laughs> in a very, very red race that he I mean, thought it was slightly, slightly yeah. less red than it was before I ran. <laughs> I mean, you can get just a monthly subscription for $35, you know. Certainly. And it's worth it. And it might be worth doing this month. This is a good time to get it. You're right. So um, I cannot thank you enough, Jessica. I could talk to you all um, oh, all you. night long. Oh, yeah. And I really appreciate it. Jessica Taylor from the yeah. Cook Political Report. Guys, if you've listened and you've enjoyed it, please rate us and review and like and subscribe and do all that fancy stuff. Go check out Cook Political Report and read um, Jessica's stories and her updates on gubernatorial and Senate races. And join us back here next week for the next episode of How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along? On September 17th, 2009, 24-year-old Mitrice Richardson disappeared without a trace in the woods near Malibu, California, and was never seen alive again. I'm Katherine Townsend, host of the podcast, Helen Gone. We're going to try to find out what really happened to Mitrice Richardson. School of Humans and iHeartRadio present Helen Gone, Season 3. Listen to Helen Gone on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After you listen to today's podcast, here's one to add to your playlist. I'm Christian O'Connell, and I've had this thought for a while. What if you took the world's funniest and most interesting people... Hello, I'm Ricky Gervais. I'm Celeste Barber. People call me Beyonce. I'm Russell Brand. ...and asked them to share the stories behind their three most treasured items. No doubt about it, the guitar. I think I know the same chords now as I did when I was 14. From iHeartRadio, this is The Stuff of Legends. Add it to your playlist for free. Just search for Stuff of Legends in your podcast app.